The following broadcast from Psychedelia comes from Sunday the 10th of December, broadcast live from the Entheogenesis Australis 2017 Psychedelic Symposium at Holmes Glen in Eildon. This is a 3CR podcast. For more 3CR podcasts, head to 3cr.org.au. About, uh, well, we're going to be talking about what we've been talking about on the show for about two years now, um, and uh, we, we feel like it's going round and round in circles a little bit, but there have been some very uh, interesting talks uh, this weekend at the uh, Entheogenesis Australis uh, conference, some very inspirational uh, talks. Uh, so, uh, with, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our panel this <coughs> afternoon. Uh, I, what I'll do is I'll uh, say each of your names and then get you to um, say just something quick about yourself uh, and um, just yeah, give a little bit of an introduction about yourself and also what, what's really driving you at the moment to change what things are, are happening. And Rick, first, do you have a mic? You need a mic. Rick Doblin. Yeah, um, so I... Um am uh, being driven by uh, political dynamics in the United States that has produced um, a retreat from rationality and anti-science, uh, America first, uh, the other people go to hell, um, the kind of um, narrow thinking that projects out uh, enemies are all out there, and that's what I was originally motivated to work in this area was because of the Holocaust and because I just thought that those psychological dynamics are so dangerous and how uh, the sort of sense of unity and connection that you can get from psychedelics um, is an antidote to that. So that's what's been driving me, but what I'm doing is uh, started MAPS in uh, 1986 and it's basically a nonprofit pharmaceutical company trying to address um, suffering and th that is the path of least resistance to make psychedelics and marijuana into prescription medicines change the culture and eventually go to a post-prohibition world. Uh, we're gonna jump around the panel a little bit, which doesn't matter if you are listening because you can't see what's going on. Monica Barrett, you get to be next. So is this mic working? Yeah, you don't even need to talk into the shoulder too much, I don't oh, think. Oh, okay, fantastic. <laughs> uh, so thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, my name's Dr. Monica Barrett. Um, I'm a research fellow at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. Um, What's driving me? Uh, look, I, um, I'll just take from what you've just said, Rick, there, the uh, post-prohibition world. I mean, I, um, I look at some of the injustices that are going on in terms of our drug laws in Australia, and that deeply concerns me. Um, now that I have an almost four-year-old, I, I wonder whether that will still be the same when he enters his teens and early 20s and inevitably encounters the same kind of world where drugs are around, where altered states of consciousness are something that he and many others in his <coughs> cohort want to do and the last thing I would want is for that to be the same as what many of us here have experienced so you know that drives a lot of the work that I do having said that um, it's quite difficult to just you know like we can talk about that but in terms of the research that I do and the environment I work in um, trying to have a place through things like the global drug survey for different stories to be told about drugs, so people can actually tell these stories through the data that I can then present to people, then that gives me an in to, um, you know, when I'm at a straight lace conference, I can talk about, um, about those different experiences and say, hey, these are not all the same. Not everybody gets addicted. Not everybody is only having problems. So that's what I'm trying to do. And the Global Drug Survey is open now for yes, recipients. Yes, so uh, global, Feel free global to do drugsurvey.com, I think. 
is the place to go. Ben Sessa. Uh, hi, yeah, I'm Ben Sessa. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I work with adolescents and I work with adults with addictions. Um, and in the last 15 years, I've been working in the field of psychedelic research through Imperial College London, which has a very active psychedelic research program running. In the last 10, 15 years, we've studied LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ketamine, and MDMA. And uh, I'm currently running the UK's first MDMA psychotherapy study for treating addictions, specifically alcohol addiction. And the thing that drives me is um, 15 years, 15, 20 years clinical experience and the recognition that many of the treatment modalities we have in psychiatry are ineffective, unsafe for a great many of our patients and they're not moving forward. So it's my patient's uh, struggles and uh, seeing too many young people and, and adults losing the battle to their uh, long-term mental health problems unnecessarily because they don't have the right tools. So uh, the idea that psychedelic medicine can improve safety and efficacy is what drives me. And the other thing that is driving me is trying to find the right language to increase accessibility and dissemination of these ideas outside of this wonderful, colorful community, which is wonderful, but tiny and almost imperceptible, certainly as far as authorities are concerned. So if we're really going to move this forward, we, uh, the preaching to the converted at wonderful events like this is all very well, but we've got to step outside those gates and talk to the people who know nothing about this, and what they do know terrifies them. There, we can find a way to do that, but we need to be creative. And I hope uh, that's um, really resonating with some people that are listening along in your car, shower, wherever you have to listen. Fiona Misham. Hi. Uh, yeah, I've uh, been trying to make some progress with each of them. So uh, in academia, I'm professor of criminology at Durham University in the UK. Um, in policy terms, uh, I've been for the past nine years government drugs <coughs> advisor on the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs. Uh, and also for the past four years in the uh, harm reduction field that I'm co-founder and co-director of a non-profit guerrilla or grassroots organisation which provides harm reduction advice in festivals and clubs. Uh, and in the UK last year we introduced the first uh, drug safety testing as we call it, but pill checking as you call it here. Um, so I guess what drives me is trying to productively work on the academic policy and harm reduction fronts and when I get frustrated quite often in one, then I can switch to another and try and make a bit more progress in another. But the same as the other people who've spoken before, which is that um, we can and should be doing better in terms of reducing drug-related harm. Absolutely. And finally, Nick Kent. Hi, um, so yeah, my name's Nick. Um, I'm a teacher, I suppose, is my main thing at the moment. Um, I recently graduated and work at a, at a public high school and um, just finished my thesis looking at the drug education curriculum. Um, so I think what um, inspires me largely overall is the disconnect that we see um, in this wonderful, colourful community that we're talking about and everything that that can foster. And then what we see, what we're all talking about happens when we go back into society, um, into the broader discourse and, and ultimately into my classrooms. Um, and so understanding that disconnect and trying to get around it and figure out how to break it down is what inspires me and to bring that wonder and colour to everyone, I suppose. Um, I'm also, um, another hat I suppose is I've helped set up Students for Sensible Drug Policy in Australia, which is um, part of a, an international network of around 25 organisations around the world on all six continents. Um, and yeah, I helped set up the first chapter at, at University of Melbourne and um, 
I suppose I'll quickly say we're in transition at the moment, so I don't technically have a position, which is potentially good because <laughs> we're supposed to be an apolitical organization which um, engages with people on all spectrums of politics, which is definitely what I want to be doing going forward. But maybe at this moment in this time, I can be a little bit more transparent about my personal politics. This maybe that will come out on this panel. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't Psychedelia on 3CR 855 <coughs> and digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. We are live right now from the Entheogenesis Australis 2017 uh, Psychedelic Symposium uh, in Eildon, uh, right amongst the trees. And it's uh, pretty lush out here with all the rain on Friday. Uh, ben, something you brought up before uh, was that we are in a crowd here where we're often pre preaching to the converted um, and we are hearing amazing stories here. There are some real uh, amazing stories to be told as well. But on the other side of it, we've seen a trend uh, in drug policy in various nations, especially uh, in Australia and in the UK. Um, I'm not sure how it works in the US, but I suspect the states are going to start picking up on it. And that's this idea that we need to start banning anything that could be psychoactive. And this is, a, this is a very broad definition. These psychoactive substances bans have been brought into most Australian uh, states now. Uh, Victoria recently implemented theirs uh, about a month ago. Uh, the UK passed theirs, I think it was two years ago, year and a half ago. Um, and I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but it wouldn't surprise me if these things pop up. And I just want to read the language from this act because I think uh, there's uh, something that I want to dig deep into a little bit. Um, on what, what it sort of implies. Uh, so the, the, the banning is anything that creates a psychoactive effect is a prohibited substance automatically. Uh, and a psychoactive effect is defined as the stimulation or depression of a person's central nervous system resulting in hallucinations or in a significant disturbance in or change to motor function uh, <laughs> perception, <laughs> awareness or mood, uh, thinking or behavior. Uh, so it's pretty broad, and, and nowhere in there is there any mention of potential for harm. And the, the whole drug debate over the past 100 years has been about we're protecting you. And we've seen this move going, OK, well, uh, it's a health problem, but all of it implies that there's some kind of harm. But now we've seen, we're seeing these laws that aren't, even, that aren't even trying to link it back to harm. They're not even trying to say we're, we're going to set up a process, find out what's bad and what's not so bad. What, can, can we start? Let's talk, let's talk to this a little bit. It's going to get very broad, but um, okay. what's going on here? What's the change going well, on here? Well, the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act is the greatest piece of pseudoscience that, that politics has managed to come up with in the last 46 years. It's an extraordinary piece of non-scientific uh, political folly that has caused immense amounts of social harm and degradation for almost 50 years. It's, it's interesting, because when I started in this field, the word prohibition was a word that we used to describe the well-known, laughable folly of the 1920s. And everyone accepts what a ridiculous waste of time that was. Now, this is exactly what we've been living in for the last 50 years, but with a much broader range of drugs. And because we've grown up in it, we sort of think the governments must have their, our best interests at heart, and there must be some sense to it. Now, the war on drugs has lost on every single front. It's lost on the front of reducing harm, because it's increased harm. It's lost on the front of reducing deaths. Weirdly, it's even lost on the front of reducing usage. It hasn't even reduced usage. So if it's not reducing harm, it's not reducing deaths, and it's not reducing usage of drugs, then what is its purpose? And the only front on which to fight the war on drugs today is the moral and ethical front, which is that drugs are just bad. And when I say drugs, I don't mean alcohol and cigarettes, because they're not drugs. 
which is just sloppy pharmacology. We, we rolled our eyes yeah. uh, so in unison. We're in this peculiar position where if we're going to have such a far-reaching social policy that has such a massive impact on so many people, and it's only front that it's being fought on as a moral or ethical front, then my God, we have to look at some other things. There are a great many things that lots of people consider immoral and unethical. Eating meat, uh, keeping pets, horse riding, religion. You know, there are lots of things that we have many broad um, moral and ethical standpoints on, but they're not banned. So. Why are we still doing it? And the idea that this nanny state idea that it's to us and save us from harm, it's clearly not the case. So we have this peculiar state is immense, yet it persists. And then we start getting into the realm of kind of conspiracy theories. You know, what's going on? Do the CIA work with the mafia? Um, does the drinks industry prop up the Misuse of Drugs Act? And I don't like conspiracy theories, but you do wonder why such a nonsensical policy seems to persist. Well, and you also start to wonder, at least in Australia, I don't know what it's like in the UK and US, but uh, seeing the lists of people that are involved uh, with the meetings uh, where they talk about drug policies with the COAG, which is a Commonwealth... Uh, something, something Australian governments. Um, but it's where they all meet up, all the different states meet up, and uh, you'll see in there a bunch of uh, uh, government people, but then you'll also see a lot of liquor industry, and, and you think, uh, it's mostly liquor industry, you don't really, nobody likes the tobacco industry anymore, so uh, they don't have a lot of friends, but a lot of liquor industry. Maybe it's a very Australian thing, but uh, what I wanted to, well, I mean, the reason why this has come about, that the psychoactive substances ban has been, uh, because we are moving in quick times of technological change, uh, it's changed a lot of things, and that includes drugs. So what we've seen, we've seen a common pattern, and it's been happening for probably hundreds of years, ever since um, uh, chemicals were first synthesised and people realised they could make new drugs, was this uh, pattern, and it was much slower back then, of a novel substance, people are trying it, researching it, it's underground, to a slightly broader use, to an incident that gets the attention of the media, uh, and then from there the attention uh, of the government and then and then the ban and then this cycle restarts and this cycle has become very quick lately uh, with the media reports on the synthetic cannabis and the uh, other various synthetic substances that uh, all sorts of different countries have had a, a wide variety of substances it's the reason why we really need pill testing as well now because these novel substances are everywhere but it's as i said it's not a new thing and in fact rick uh, when you were first uh, working with MDMA in the 1980s, it wasn't a banned substance, and you saw this in slow motion. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about what happened there and how you're seeing the change of laws as we're moving into the further into the 21st century. Yeah, when I first learned about MDMA, <clears throat> it was 1982, and there had been, um, starting in the middle 70s, uh, a group of therapists and psychiatrists that had started working with. MDMA in a quiet way because they knew if they made it public it would be criminalized and around half a million doses were used in these therapeutic settings and personal growth settings and some of the people that used it in those settings realized that there could be a much wider market for it they wanted to use it in more public settings and they turned it into ecstasy so when I learned about it in 1982 it was both an underground therapy drug, though it was legal, under the code name Adam, and it was being used in more public settings under the name Ecstasy. So it was clear that at this time, 1982, was Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and the escalation of Just Say No 
and the drug war. And the reasons for that were that in the 60s, the psychedelics had been connected with the anti-war movement, with the environmental movement, with social change movements that were challenging the status quo. So it was perceived of as drugs of the counterculture, drugs that were trying to um, were motivating people that were against the mainstream of society. And so it was, it's per, was perceived that way again under Reagan. And I think that's why we get these laws that sort of ban all these drugs because they have that uh, connotation that somehow if you take these drugs, you're gonna wake up and you know, not be part of the dominant system and, and protest. So I think what we were able to see though is that because it was legal in this initial context, a lot of people were willing to try it that were not willing to break the law. But since it was legal, we started working with Roman Catholic monks and monasteries who were using half doses for meditation, rabbis, uh, Zen meditators, um, psychotherapists, psychiatrists. So we built up an incredible body of people who had establishment credentials and who were willing once the inevitable crackdown came to speak up because they weren't incriminating themselves. And so once the DEA moved to criminalize ecstasy in 1984, I went to DC and we filed for a hearing and actually were able to both win in the court of public opinion with the rabbis and the monks all talking about the value of MDMA and then the scientists in the hearings and so it was a great tragedy to see that even though the DEA administrative law judge said that MDMA should be Schedule Three, meaning illegal for recreational use but legal for therapeutic and psychi psychiatric use, the head of the DEA rejected the recommendation and criminalized it anyway. And so that's, in response to that, is why I created MAPS in 86, to try to bring it back through science, through medicine, and to persuade people that the healing potentials given in certain contexts would have way more benefits than risks. So it was kind of a idyllic early times where we were able to really work in a legal context. And when DEA went to criminalize MDMA, there, it, it was, again, it wasn't being done on the basis of harm because the way that they looked at it was illegal use equals abuse. And you don't need to show harm because the fact that these are drugs that are being used that are similar to other illegal drugs. Shortly thereafter, they passed the analog bill that said that drugs that were similar to drugs in structure or effect were also illegal. But there's been very few prosecutions on that in the United States. So it's similar in Australia, uh, a lot of people get threatened by it, uh, but not a lot of people actually, there's not a lot of prosecutions that happen. And the approach as well that you're, you're talking about there, as, as an academic, uh, it's, it's, it's a top-down approach. You're seeing the people at the top and you're talking to these people, uh, figuring out how to connect and figuring out how to legitimize it as well. Because this, this word legitimacy keeps coming up whenever I'm uh, reading through uh, political things through Hansard yeah. uh, and it's just these substances are considered illegitimate by all societies that prohibit them not for any logical reason but because it's right there in the law well, and what the law says is the yeah. legitimacy apparently but, but it is top-down in that sense but also through the media through the public education yes that's where we're trying to really build a base of support for it so that's where the working with areas where people are suffering and showing that there's some help for them that's where you build public support for it. So what we've been able to see, and sometimes I show slides of the, the changing media presentations. Yeah. And you know, the images of MDMA over the decades, well, from holes in the brain to magic pill. 
And Mon Monica, you've been um, tracking a lot of uh, a lot of that sort of stuff with the recent um, movement in uh, novel psychoactive substances and looking at uh, uh, what what's going on with uh, with the discussion around them. And 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 there's some really interesting articles that you've uh, produced on it. So um, I suppose you're talking about that outlay. Can you uh, give us a little bit of an insight into what what has been going on recently in Australia uh, in terms of this this process that keeps happening, this cycle of prohibition? Sure. So um, what we did was we had a look at that um, definition of psychoactive effect that's now written into Commonwealth legislation and applies at a federal level in Australia. Um, because our drug, sort of things like use, possession, uh, supply, most of these offences are actually state-based or territory-based here. So the federal law is, is not necessarily applying to someone who might be in possession of a drug, but it might apply to imports or things that are coming into the country. Um, and what was really interesting was we traced this language back uh, in uh, Ireland when they first put in this um, blanket ban of psychoactive substances, I think it was 2011, that the language is very similar uh, to the Irish legislation, but also that language is very similar to the 1971 US, uh, UN Convention uh, in terms of a description of a psychoactive substance. So they, they sort of borrow this language over time and, and sort of morph it slightly, change it very slightly. And I think it's really interesting the comment you made earlier, Nick, about harm, and there is no mention of harm in these laws. So if, if it is similar to, um, well, the, so the analogue laws, and what you were speaking about, Rick, that idea of is it structurally similar or is it functionally similar, um, that's sort of what we've had in Australia. I think Australia took that from America and, and, and we had analogue legislation that came in in, I think it was 2005 at a federal level. Um, and then um, different states took up different versions of that. And so we had, um, uh, I think about five years ago, where Queensland took up a version of that, which was that um, it could be functionally similar, it could be structurally similar, but it didn't have to be both. So you had these strange situations where something like, you know, a, a, an everyday fruit might be structurally similar. You know, I think like avocado had avocado, something in it that it could pineapple? have been... Was it yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, Austin's so, got the answers on that. So yes, he does. And so you ended up with these situations. And you know, some of us, um, I remember going to a law enforcement conference, uh, it was a drug strategy conference about five years ago, and talking to the Queensland police about this and saying, well, you know, isn't this a bit strange that suddenly you know, pineapples, this is your, this is your state's favourite fruit and it's now illegal, you have a big pineapple. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, that's not what it's about. And, and, and going back to that idea of prosecutions, that there's been very few prosecutions with these legislations, when you actually speak to law enforcement, they say, it's not about that. You know, we don't, we expect it to have a general broad deterrence effect. We don't, ex we're not necessarily that concerned about prosecutions, uh, which I think is, is interesting because ideally a law, a good law, is something that is particular enough that you as a citizen understand whether you are breaking it. You need to know whether you are breaking the law or not. And these laws become so broad that it's actually can be quite difficult to know whether you're breaking the law. So there's all these discussions about what is significant. What does it mean to have a significant effect on and all the things that Nick said before? It, what is significant? Is, is one glass of wine equivalently significant? Is it one joint? Is that enough? Or does it have to be something bigger than that? So 
we don't really know, um, but we know that the idea is that we want to stop, well, from the legislator's perspective, that they want to stop this cycle of these drugs just continually being reproduced and being They want legal. to stop the cycle, but they're not looking at what's driving it. And this yes, is the problem no, there. They're just exactly they're looking so, at the wheel and going... Oh. Yeah, so they're looking at supply, and they only seem to be focused on supply. So I was um, recently in a hearing for the Victorian Inquiry into Drug Law Reform, and talked a little bit about this issue. And I just said, look, we have to look at demand. We have to look at why would people want these particular substances? What's driving that? Are there policies that we currently have in place that are driving that? For example, drug driving legislation, where we're you know, only testing for three or four primary substances. So definitely I've anecdotal evidence that people say, well, I'll take LSD or cocaine. And I know they're not testing for those because they're testing for these others. So that can apply equally to these NPS, knowing that um, you know, there's a, there's a novel substance out that it's not going to come up in a driving test. Um, you know, it doesn't mean we want people to be driving on drugs, but we might want to think about the fact that this enforcement, which is not actually really about driving on drugs, it's actually about do you have a drug in your system from three days ago? That's hardly really what the problem is. So looking at some of the demand factors, uh, not just and supply. It's, would be it's really often helpful. undiscussed. I mean, we, we do get that. She's running into lights. We do get that. Uh, uh, we, we often get the repentant narrative. We often hear of the uh, ex-drug user who's gone through hell, who will you know be happy to tell you about uh, how they've repented, they've saved their lives now, um, and that's an acceptable narrative. That's one of yeah. those acceptable ones. The medical one is acceptable because it's it's scientific. It's you know dress, dressed up in that. But if somebody wants to talk about uh, something that maybe is a little bit more um, more, more personally significant but might look a bit bizarre from the outside, that, uh, that's considered illegitimate. Now, your program, um, Fiona, uh, is The Loop, and you've recently conducted some, uh, some, some drug testing in the UK at a festival, uh, but you've been working with people at, at the sort of coalface, I suppose, the drug coalface, um, for a while. What are your thoughts on what, what drives demand, having conversations with people and hearing people? What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think... Um I think it's important to have the voice of social scientists in the room as well, and I agree with what Monica was saying, to understand how, um, how drug use interacts with drug laws. So if we prohibit a drug, some people will be deterred by that. Some people don't want to break the law. They don't want to be buying drugs down dark alleyways. Uh, for other people, they'll carry on. It'll go underground. It'll push, push it underground. And then for some people, they'll carry on taking different drugs. So it'll be displaced, and that could be to more dangerous substances. It might not be. So there's quite a lot of complicated factors at work, and we need to drill down as social scientists and understand about drug user behaviour. And I think it's worth saying, um, to put my hand up and confess, that I sat on the expert panel, the ministerial expert panel in the UK, for the uh, review of the Psychoactive Substances Act, as it came to be known. And the majority of the people on that uh, committee were vested in, had vested uh, stake in, this, in the status quo. So you'll have people from law enforcement, border control, police, who clearly are going to be committed to prohibition. Um, but also there are establishment scientists there, chemists, pharmacologists, medics, um, and they're committed to prohibition as well. So um, it isn't about a conspiracy theory. It isn't about the alcohol industry being in the room. There are people who will stand up and say, in their view, and their professional view, that they think that if a drug is very dangerous, the best thing to do is to ban it to deter people from taking it. As a social scientist, you can challenge that. Um, and I've tried to do that for the past 25 years and the past nine years on a government committee but there will be people who genuinely think that. So I think it's important that we create a space, um, that we create a vision of what a post-prohibition, uh, strictly regulated world would look like. 
because I think these people who say the best thing to do is to prohibit drugs think that uh, if you then legalise drugs, you have some crazy Wild West children on drugs 24 hours a day type of scenario. So I think we do have to be very specific in terms of uh, creating a model of what a post-prohibition uh, regulatory regime would look like and why we can argue that that would have less harm than a prohibition regime. So I think it's about taking back that space to be doing that. But we do have to accept that there are a lot of people who work in that space, academics as well, who are vested in and have created careers out of the status quo. Yeah. And that change uh, it happens slowly, it happens very slowly, and it can often feel like one step forward, two steps back. Uh, but something um, that I've been paying a bit more attention to, uh, attention to lately, and that's partly because of Nick, uh, and I'm not speaking to myself, the other Nick, uh, <laughs> is, is what's the kind of education that's going on uh, in our schools? I remember my drug education in high school was, uh, I think we had a health class on it, and then we had this weird class. I don't know, if anyone else had this, can you put your hands up? But uh, in high school, we had this guy come in with glass bongs, right? to teach us not to use plastic bongs because he was like it's bad because you get a bit of like hose in your in your hit and it's real bad i went to emerald secondary like a, a public school and this was in the early 2000s so i don't know what that was did anyone have that no I don't, okay we have a lot of bongs at our school so I mean, that's good. back then sorry emerald i'm sure you fixed it but you know um but but it's the education what what is the education and we've just had the end of the uh end of the school year for uh, 18 or 17 or 18 year olds the vce students uh, and there's been a lot of interesting conversations. And Nick, you've, you've uh, had that, that opportunity. You speak to these people all the time, and it's your particular area of interest. What, what is going on with education in our schools? Because it has to start somewhere. Cool. Um, cool. Well, so firstly, I'm actually, I just finished my master's um, this year, like very recently, and I'm actually presenting at five down at the Little Dome a bit more specifically on what I, what I looked at. Um, so I guess I'll kind of gloss around more broadly the question, and I kind of want to link it to what everyone else has said as well. I'll see. <laughs> yeah, but um, in terms to answer your question, um, what I looked at, I suppose, is stepping back more broadly and trying to figure out um, over history and up until now, how have we talked to kids about drugs and what vestiges from those other times are still happening now and what other terminologies are policymakers and the system sort of using to, to ultimately mask the fact that we still teach abstinence um, in Australia. And um, that's a really interesting <coughs> development, the fact that they were doing that. And so, and they can under the current system. Under the current system in Australia, you can kind of justify a principle, and it's up to the principle to decide, um, who could have a very a range of opinions on drugs, um, to decide what they want to implement in their local school community. Um, and that can be anything from a hardline abstinence-based approach, which may not be um, backed up in, in research, which it isn't. But what I found in my research is that that is still what's happening, um, particularly with uh, police involvement. Um, to uh, what, we'd, what, we're look, what a lot of critical research and critical pedagogy is looking at now in terms of, um, I suppose, post-structural assemblage thinking. So basically just re like totally breaking down the whole way that we look or we impose um, what health is on students or um, that you have to reach this objective level of health, otherwise you're a moral failure. Um, and what that actually means and where that actually comes from and can anyone actually define what you mean by health? Um, and my guess is that a lot of people can't. Um, and, and so I think what, what tends to be happening is we've got this system through the language of harm minimization and harm reduction in which um, 
the current status quo can be dressed up mm. as in we're looking at we're looking at harm we're not just teaching abstinence we're mm. talking about the harms and how to reduce them and that could manifest in something that sounds like quite true harm reduction as in don't maybe use a glass bong instead of a plastic bong that mm. to me would sound like a good harm reduction message but and that's interesting that that was happening. And it's probably Might because your principal smoked bongs. I don't know, maybe <laughs> out in Emerald, maybe. Um, but like, I think um, that's lucky. You know, that's lucky that you got that message or any kind of message like that. Because that not only do you hear that, but that's that's a different message from cannabis is an evil plant, and and kids can take something different away from that. Um, but. The problem with the harm minimization and harm reduction thing, and I think I might just quickly, I'm not sure if you've already done this or anyone else has, but I've heard a lot of um, the, the two words being used interchangeably, and in the Australian context, that's quite really quite problematic. Um, so quick like summary is harm minimization is the title of our national drug strategy, um, which, which is any policy which aims to reduce or to minimize the harmful effects of drugs, which is what the cops Everything say they're basically. doing. And, um, and then so under that, you have the three pillars of supply reduction, police and law enforcement, demand reduction, so treatment and prevention, and harm reduction, um, which is supposedly equal, except that harm reduction gets 2% of the funding, and supply reduction and demand reduction get 98. So, um, so that's how the supply system... Supply reduction gets... 60, plus. yeah, yeah. And so um, that's how we've used, and this is what I was saying in, in, to some people in, at, I was recently at the Drug Policy Reform Conference in Atlanta and saying to a lot of US Americans how um, don't like focus on harm reduction as the be all and end all, as the fix for the war on drugs. It's almost like it's a really, it's, I like to think of it as a band-aid for this epic wound that we're dealing with, which is really good for right now and really necessary to reduce those harms like yesterday and today. But in terms of actually changing the system, in terms of changing, um, in terms of addressing why they can just blanket ban all drugs, or in terms of addressing why we have this really messed up drug education system that's really difficult for people to navigate, or in terms of addressing why we're moralized for feeling good taking drugs and dancing on a dance floor. and and why that's like they're trying to beat that out of us the reasons behind all that are really really interesting and it's, it comes down to this um really deep-seated abstinence culture which emerged at the end of the 19th century through the temperance movement which is linked to a whole bunch of racism and questionable politics and we need to start looking at that and start looking at colonialism and racial disparity and i'm really really interested and really worried to hear you talk about that the potential discretion used in implementing those um, psychoactive substance bans, because mm. if it's just this broad thing that's there as a symbolic message and that cops mm. can... Exactly. Like, yeah. the history tends to show that there's particular communities that they're going to be disproportionately focusing on, and they're not probably going to be looking at the, the wealthy white cocaine users, and that, that's a real problem. It's, it's so unjust. It's, yeah. it, it, uh, really, uh, we were focusing there, I think, on the... Um, the, the morality issues uh, and, and morality and healthcare being sort of intertwined in this pro prohibition debate. Um, and I'm sure it's something that you've come across, Ben, uh, in your work, because as a child uh, psychiatrist, like, how do you approach morality and healthcare? How are these intertwined? And what, what does that uh, have to say about how we develop our, our drug education and what we say to the next generation about these uh, altered states and substances that, that create them? I mean, I think uh, I very much agree with what Nick said. I think we have to go look back at the foundations on which drug prohibition is, 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 is founded. And they're very shaky indeed, mm. and they're very dark. Mm. And it's also drug uh, prohibition is really founded on this ridiculous, uh, nebulous principle that if we ban things, we can eradicate them. 
if we make them illegal, then no one will want to do them and they'll go away. And so if you look at the uh, Psychoactive Substances Bill in 2016 in the UK, um, the first thing that I thought when I heard about that was, oh great, why don't we ban heroin and cocaine? Oh no, we did. Um, mm. So things don't go away when you ban them. All that happens is you hand this enormous market to, to the criminal underworld. Um, cannabis is the third biggest cash crop on the planet, second only to wheat and rice, and completely out of control of all the states. Trillions of dollars of massive amount of uh, industry in, in, under no control. Um, so we have this ridiculous premise in which we are trying to ban something that can't be banned. People have been taking, um, altering their, their mental states with substances for at least 70,000 years. Um, and it's very recent that we've, recently that we've demonized this and uh, arbitrarily chosen cigarettes and alcohol as not to be under the ban. So if we look at where we go forward, um, if we imagine uh, a shop down the, the road that sells ecstasy, cannabis, MDMA, uh, amphetamine, heroin, cocaine, magic mushrooms, LSD. Now, for your average um, conservative voter, that's an extraordinary thing, and they just cannot get their heads around that. It would, they, would, they would feel that drugs have just appeared where they weren't there before. But what they have to realize is that drugs are there anyway. They may not be in that shop. They're in that kitchen up there. They're in that car over there. They're in that school over there. They're in that pocket there. So they are here. They are here in an unregulated way. The another thing that really interests me as well, the word controlled drugs. They're not controlled. They're completely out of control. Um, penicillin is a controlled drug. I mean, it's not a controlled drug, but it is. It is. Try and find black market penicillin. It's really hard. You'll find, black, you market, you'll find black market cocaine. So the things we think we're controlling, we're not. Um, so it's completely out. So how do we shift hearts and minds into the idea that that shop will work? And it's hard. Now, politicians call this the seatbelt effect, this phenomenon, this idea of it can never be done. And the, the argument being seatbelts. So for 40 years, successive, um, uh, the, the, the medical profession uh, lobbied successive governments in the UK. You must make seatbelts compulsory in cars. And for 40 years, every single government said, no way, it could never be done. There'd be riots in the streets. There would be a massive political uh, revolution, and the, the people would never stand for it. Then one day in 1983, a brave politician said, all right, we'll make it compulsory. Three minutes later, everyone wears a seatbelt. There were no riots in the streets. It was, and they call this phenomenon the seatbelt effect. It's when politicians have got it wrong because they fear public opinion. Smoking in pubs is the other thing, yeah? Five years ago, ten years ago, whenever it came in, it would just be absolute taboo for someone to light up a cigarette in here now. But we never thought that could be done, and it can be done. So if the same thing can happen with drugs, we will look back on this prohibitionist period from 1971 to 20-whatever it's going to be with shame, shame, and absolute regret <coughs> of the massive social problems we caused by filling the prisons, criminalizing people, destroying people's lives for a battle that should never have been fought. Because the thing is, I work in addiction services, in substance misuse services. I don't want to see people high all the time. That's not the agenda. The agenda is to see people safer. And if they're going to use drugs, they use them safely. And if they're not going to use drugs, they're not going to use drugs. So either you don't use drugs so it shouldn't bother you, or you do use drugs, in which case you don't have to impact on everyone else with your criminality. Either way, it's a win-win situation to reform the drug laws. Thank you, Ben. Um, 
there, there's just a little anecdote I just want to throw in here at this point um, because it's something that uh, really interested me. It was uh, in a paper by a man uh, in Australia, I think he's at University of Sydney, called Desmond Manderson, uh, and he wrote a paper called uh, Possession, uh, and he was linking uh, the way that we think about uh, drug use and the way that we thought about uh, witches when they were being burnt at the stake. And this idea that the very, the very, uh, that possession as a crime, you possess this drug, it's like you possess this, this spirit that's going to make you mad and it's going to make you rape and kill and do all the, you know, reefer madness stuff. These reefer madness movies are this possessing force that comes into you. Mind you, this weekend we have uh, been discussing that maybe this, uh, there is a little bit of this uh, metaphysical uh, stuff to unwrangle a little bit, but I just thought it was a uh, interesting little bit that this idea that the first crime that if you've got a small amount of drugs, your, your crime is possession. Possession of what? Possession of the idea that you could do something evil out there with this entity inside you. Uh, this is 3CR Community Radio, uh, 855 digital and 3cr.org.au, live right now from Entheogenesis Australis Psychedelic Symposium 2017 at Holmes Glen in Eildon. Uh, on the panel, Rick Doblin, Ben Sessa, Monica Barrett, Nick Kent, and Fiona Meesham. Uh, now, Rick, uh, you, uh, in back, back, uh, oh, geez, I had my question before and then ranted it out of me. Uh, <laughs> wanted, the drugs, man. <laughs> it's a shaker, but yeah, not enough water. Um, uh, in, oh, you've been pursuing this path of uh, medicalization for legitimacy, um, and, and uh, for the large part, and from what we've been hearing this week, and it's it's working, and it's going to do. It's going to make fantastic and positive change to people that that really need it. People who are in most need. But the the other side is we know that there is a huge community of people that are using these substances, uh, and they might have. Uh, other things, but it's probably not the things that would turn up if you went into a, psych a psychologist and it would turn up and get, they'd go, oh, well, you need healing for that. We just use these things sometimes for benefits and for the positives. What do you, what do you think, with this medical approach, what's, what does it have to, how, how does it link up with the rest of it, with the, with the other approaches? What, what happens uh, as you keep pursuing it? Are we going to lock these things away in doctor's cabinets is what I'm saying, I guess. Are we going to make sure that it's highly controlled, that the only access ever is through a physician when you have a diagnosable problem? Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that medicalization leads to legalization. And I think that when we talk about medicalizing psychedelics, and in our case right now, medicalizing MDMA, um, I do sort of put on my policeman's hat in a way. And so we're trying to make it so that when it's a medicine, it's only used by uh, in therapeutic settings, and we limit the abuses. There's no diversion of it outside. So we are very much protecting the medical use and keeping it in that context and developing all sorts of policies. Only trained therapists can use it, only in clinic settings. It's not a take-home drug. Everything's tracked. There's a patient registry. But the way that medicalization leads to legalization is that we have been fed a diet of miseducation and misinformation about the risks of these drugs. And so we've heard a lot of stories about exaggerating the risks and uh, denying the benefits. And when we medicalize something, we're showing that there are certain contexts where the benefits outweigh the risks and that we can create those and people can see those, people can benefit from non-ordinary states of consciousness. And that gets widespread 
throughout the society information about that through the media because the media is very interested in new scientific discoveries and new medical treatments. So we're able to get earned media worth millions, billions of dollars to counteract the negativity. And also when people see um, in the medical marijuana states in the United States, um, we've talked with policy advocates and it turns out that medical marijuana leads to changing attitudes towards legalization more than decriminalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. And you think that decrim might be the way to go because that's specifically addressing the criminal laws. But it turns out that when you decriminalize a drug, you're not creating legal access. The taboo is still there. You're still in a prohibition world. You've just uh, made it a fine instead of jail or something like that. And when you have medical marijuana, people then can access it. There's medical marijuana dispensaries. People can see that the marketing of it is, you know, without people with machine guns all the time. It's not done by the criminal underground. So medicalization really leads to legalization. And so it's our view that as we try to create very restrictive situations for medical use to make sure that it stays medical, that the education that's going to be promoted by that will change people's attitudes about prohibition. But I, I do have one question, if I could ask Fiona. Oh, yeah, question, go. Which is that, um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is, um, you know, fundraising for medicine, for psychedelic research, because we're not getting the funding from the government. And one of the donors that I was talking to was um, quite um, quite wealthy donor, and he was saying, how do you envision this, your exact question? I said, well, I envision this to be, eventually it's medicalized, but it's not gonna be a medical priesthood, and people should be able to get it in a legalization context for their own personal use if they want to. And, and he said, well, do you think that way for cocaine and for heroin, that that should also be legal? And I said, yeah, I think that the more dangerous the drug, the more important it is that it be legal. Mm -hmm. And so, Fiona, I'm kind of wondering if you have that perspective. And my rationale was that you want to destigmatize it. The more dangerous it is, the more people, if they'll get into trouble with it, if they're stigmatized, they're not going to seek help. So the more dangerous, the better it, the more important it is that it be legal, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, first of all, I should say, um, I'd like an introduction to your donors, please. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's a difficult thing to unpick, though, the relative um, sort of cultural appeal or cultural stigmatization of different drugs. Um, but undoubtedly, we don't want any of these drugs to be in the hands of organized crime. Um, it's got to be the case. But I think we need to think carefully about how um, our regulatory model might work. We can see what happened with ca cannabis in Colorado. We've got Uruguay as an alternative model. Um, so we just need to think about who's going to be supplying these drugs, uh, you know, who's, the taxation issues, um, minimum purchase age. You know, there's a lot of things to unpick in relation to how we would work a model like that. Yeah, when I mentioned this idea to the donor then, he said, I'm not going to support you. Uh -huh. He said, I'm all for, you know, medicalizing psychedelics and legal psychedelics, but I can't handle legalized um, heroin and cocaine. And so I, I lost his support that way. I wanted to ask you a question, Rick, about <laughs> medicalization leading, sorry, we're no, 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 no. medicalization leading to legalization. Is there maybe an alternative concern that by um, having legitimate medical use, it actually increases the stigma for recreational use? Um, and I'm thinking, I know that didn't happen with cannabis in the States, but maybe, for example, with heroin or cocaine. I mean, after all, we can use that uh, in the UK medically, but that hasn't, you know what I mean? that hasn't actually helped progress the situation for recreational use. 
Um, that's a really good point. Um, I don't. I don't think so. I think, but I, I do think that with medicalizing psychedelics, that we're showing that there's um, ways in which people can benefit, and then the the narratives that if you do it on your own, that somehow or other it's going to be way different and way worse. I don't. Th I think that's a harder story to tell, because we're also trying to say that our medical approach is that we facilitate the patient to heal themselves. We create a safe space, we have educated therapists, but the, the hard work is done by the patient. And so a lot of that hard work can be done in recreational settings and other settings. People can do a lot of self-healing. We've got about 10 minutes left uh, here at uh, Entheogenesis Australis 2017 Psychedelic Symposium live from Eildon on 3CR. Uh, if anybody does have some questions, please raise your hands and the microphone uh, will come around to you. Try and keep them concise. Hi. Um, just on the, the legalisation and, and the pathway that cannabis has followed, I, I wanted to get your views. Um, you talk about the medical pathway being the way that it's come on board, but I think there's a, an elephant in the room of the, the corporate element has been a massive part. You know, the, the cannabis lobby basically just outspent the alcohol lobby, and that, that's really a large part of what's driven law change. Um, so I just want to hear your views yeah, on that. Th that's actually following rather than leading. So the, the original medical marijuana laws were patient-based, were patient advocates, where there was really no industry. And a lot of it was opposed by the underground growers. In fact, when legalization was initially on the ballot in California and it failed, there was a lot of the uh, medical marijuana, the marijuana growing areas, people were against legalization because they were worried that there would be standards of production that they might not be able to meet and that there, it was the height of hypocrisy that you know hippies who had you know, gone out and courageously for decades produced marijuana, now that there was a chance to legalize it, were against it for their own um, financial interests. So I think the industry is, uh, a lagging phenomena and it's only coming on now and it's propelling the future development. So I think once you get corporate interests in there, then it makes the recriminalization even less likely, but they're not the drivers of social change and reform. Greg Kasari. Yeah, g'day Rick. Uh, I mean, as you know, I'm doing a lot of work with LSD and things like that. Now, one of the things that I often have, you know, a number of times a year is people coming to me, um, they've had to deal with psychologists and psychiatrists and things like that and they come to me and they say, I want to do therapeutic work. Now, I do mystical work, I do spiritual work, um, which really looks the same. So in terms of, you know, that sort of thing, you know, you sort of have a medical model and, um, you know, you have all of these, you know, um, settings, you've got three people looking after them, you've got the before and after, you've got everything controlled. And, you know, so someone like me that's doing sort of a one-off, um, you, know, you know, going through the, a process, but it looks very different and it's much simpler. And so in some respects, some of the people coming to me kind of, you know, everything's very complicated when they look at what you're doing and what I'm doing. They kind of go, hmm, why is it not as complicated as what you're doing or what they're doing at the Johns Hopkins and things like that? So. Where do you sort of see that overlap between medical, spiritual, and the um, limits that may be imposed by maybe making things too complex, I suppose? Yeah, my, my guess is, and then and you can tell me if this is true, but what's complicated is the research framework. The actual interaction between the therapist and the patient, I imagine, would look fairly similar to other models. 
I mean, so that, you know, we have to be doing uh, temperature readings, blood pressure readings. We have to have rigorous protocols. We can't really ad adjust the, the dose or the number of sessions. And then we have to have everything audited by the FDA. And then the DEA comes and we have to track every, you know, little uh, milligram of the drug. Yeah. And so I think that research context and the regulatory context is complicated. But the relationship between the patients and the therapists I mean, we have videotapes, all of that too, but I, I would guess that it's a very similar kind of a therapeutic approach once you can get that regulatory research structure out of the way in the actual therapy sessions. Uh, d does that seem so, true to you, or? So you think it does, like, um, Sorry, because we'll, we'll, we're on the right answer, so we'll have to just keep moving, keep moving. <laughs> um, that law that you read earlier is very sloppy. I mean, it could apply to anything. Perhaps we should use the Aikido approach and apply it to coffee or... It's got exemptions. Yeah, so, so, so yeah. The, the, rest of the, law, the rest of the legislation, it has this, this preamble, and then it says, uh, this is the list of exceptions. You know, so it's a really long list of exceptions and it exempts food, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, all currently prohibited substances that are covered under separate legislation. So what it's trying to do is get to the, um, the things that weren't covered by all the other existing legislations. Thank you. It's, it's like that stuff you put in between the walls, that, that yeah. filler gap stuff, like, except the walls are like metaphysical walls, I don't know. Um, was there another quote? There wasn't, yep, yep. We've got not too much more time left. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, I have a question for, sorry, other panellists, but uh, Mr. Doblin again, and also Fiona, to get a, a, a foreigner's people's perspective. Um, but on, um, on the issue of marketing, um, as, as we've all seen, that tobacco marketing has plummeted and tobacco use has plummeted. And similarly, alcohol use is becoming, alcohol t marketing, sorry, is becoming rather uncool. So uh, do you think, to what degree should medicinal cannabis and psychedelic medicine be marketed, if at all? Well, um, you know, we're right now, uh, we have a group of people from uh, pharmaceutical marketing companies that have donated their time to us to try to help us come up with the brand name for MDMA. Um, so I'd say the leading uh, uh, candidate right now is called Empath. Um, you know, so, you know, uh, but we're, we're working on different There's names. not enough Zs and Xs in there, though. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that no. how they work? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I think that the direct-to-consumer ads, I don't think those are necessary. We have 20,000 people already on our website that are asking to be notified when the studies start because they have PTSD. So I think through um, physicians uh, and patient networks that the word will get out. So I don't, we haven't started preparing our commercials about how you'll have a sunny day if you take the MDMA <laughs> or something like that. But, but um, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of those ads really drive uh, demand in ways that are inappropriate. And so I'm, I'm not sympathetic with that and I don't think we need it. But then again, it's a free speech issue. And so should companies be permitted to market um, I'd be fine if uh, if there were no pharmaceutical direct-to-consumer marketing. And I know that in the United States, um, it's uh, you see it all the time on the TV, and it's not the permitted in a lot of other countries. Not in Australia. We have none of those. Yeah. So we want to think: uh, Do we want the state to be supplying the drug then? And then at what at what purity level would we have controls over a certain amount of dosage? 
per week or per month uh, that people will be allowed? Uh, what, what about minimum purchase age? So there'll be all sorts of um, issues in relation to state uh, supply. Uh, but if we were going to have some sort of a free market, and I'm guessing probably for most of the countries we live in, we would, then we probably would have to think about um, marketing, responsible marketing. And we can learn a lot by not doing it the way we have with tobacco and alcohol. So we want to think about what a responsible advertising campaign might look like. You know, that would be things like not implying, uh, not implying social or sexual success if you use that particular product, um, using it responsibly, and that could relate to dosage, but also in relation to things like you know, operating machinery, cars, so on and so forth. So um, I think we would need a strict advertising uh, model because I think probably none of us live in regimes where we'd have the state directly supplying the product itself. Thank you, Fiona. And we're just about out of time, and I feel like, uh, uh, oh, thank you for that. I just got the time. Um, this, I mean, this, uh, this happens all the time. We, we've got a whole weekend of these discussions, and it'll only be the beginning of the discussion for a lot of us now, and a lot of you will uh, be picking up on ideas. I've seen a lot of notepads uh, with people taking things down, and you go, and you learn, and you keep going, and keep learning. So it's, it's, only, it's, it's an ongoing, ongoing process, and we always have to have to squeeze so much into these hours. We're just about out of time. Nick, did you want to say uh, one like last thing? Uh, I'll give you 30 seconds. Uh, okay. All right. This is something that I really wanted to touch on on this panel. I, it's so complex and there's so many different angles to take and so much to talk about. Um, <laughs> I think it's important to, to, to be conscious of the things that we don't have time to talk about as well and when we can talk about them. Okay, So what I said before in response to the potential disparity in um, enforcing that law, um, if you're free at 3.45, Ash and I will be doing a presentation here, I believe. Um, and what I didn't get the chance to say is that the fact that they can disproportionately arrest people and just choose who they want to arrest and go after, not go after certain people um, and go after other, other ones, the way that that manifests is, um, uh, it, for example, Indigenous Australians are um, 13 times more likely to be arrested for um, any kind of possession. And we're going to be talking about this more going forward, but I think that that's something that really needs to be front and centre in the conversation as well, because that's the history that we're dealing with here. Yeah. <laughs> Nick's also going to be helping us with uh, those themes on the show going into 2018. Um, so that's something that we'll be talking about a lot. I want to thank uh, our panellists this afternoon. A round of applause, please, for Rick Doblin, Ben Sessa, Monica Barrett, Nick Kent and Fiona Meesham. Uh, our technical producers from 3CR, Paddy and MV, who are sitting over there. Thank you, guys. They've driven up from Melbourne for the day. Uh, 3CR, who are broadcasting today. Uh, Holmes Glenn and Eildon at Eildon and the staff who have uh, been fantastic uh, here looking after us. Uh, and the entire EGA team, all the volunteers who have spent the past year and a half uh, getting all of this ready. And of course you for coming along and making this happen because it doesn't happen without people but that's the obvious part and jeez, uh, uh, don't know how much time we've got left now. And we time out, you know, right to the hour and we're just about to finish up. Queering Nair is up next on 3CR. This is in Psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1800 888 236. 
and Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast of Encyclopedia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.